You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking this morning at chapter 24. And we're going to read together verses 1 through 23. Acts chapter 24. You'll find this on page 933 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 23. Hear the word of God. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation... In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man, Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The Apostle Paul had been sent by the tribune to the Roman governor Felix. A military escort of nearly 500 men conducted him to Caesarea. After five days, a delegation from the Sanhedrin came and the hearing had begun. The representatives from the Jewish council had enlisted the services of one man named Tertullus. He was a skilled orator, 
an expert in the art of legal rhetoric. And they pinned their hopes on him in this case against the apostle. And history tells us that Felix was an unsympathetic and ruthless Roman governor. As a matter of fact, the historian Josephus records various examples of this official's cruel brutality. So this hearing, as you can imagine, was not inconsequential or lacking in seriousness. Paul had been charged with treason, insurrection, and the desecration of the temple. So the stakes were high. But the promise of Christ was certain. And Paul need not be anxious because Jesus is in control of all things, as we have seen in previous expositions. With flattery and false charges, this Tertullus made his case against Paul. Now, this man was a trained, experienced, and competent lawyer. He began by endeavoring to gain the governor's good favor. I don't know if that still happens today. Maybe Darren can tell us if that's true or not. I don't know. But notice how effusive he is with his lavish compliments. Barclay describes the efforts of Tertullus as almost nauseating flattery. Then the prosecutor leveled these three false charges against the Apostle Paul. One, treason. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Two, insurrection. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And three, desecration. He even tried to profane the temple. Well, Paul neither disputed with anybody nor incited any riot nor profaned the temple, as we know. There was no history of such crimes. There was no sound evidence. There wasn't any, even any true testimony. Besides, he'd been in Jerusalem for only 12 days. He had no time to commit these crimes. The Asian Jews were the ones, as a matter of fact, who stirred up the crowds and caused the disturbance, so the apostle was innocent of all the false charges that were leveled against him. But he did confess to this, to worshiping God and believing the law and the prophets. The Jews, you'll notice, described Christianity as a sect, some obscure group of extremists. But the fact is, it's the only way to salvation. It teaches that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And herein lies the great hope in God that sustained the apostles' faith. At the last day, and there will be a last day, there shall be a general resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Every human being who has ever lived will be raised up by the power of Christ. Those very same bodies that we lay in the grave will be reunited with their souls. The bodies of believers, we're told, Christians, will be raised up in honor and made like Christ's body. Stunning, beautiful, glorious. But the bodies of unbelievers will be raised up, we're taught, in dishonor by Jesus as an offended judge. And apparently, Governor Felix, for his part, was familiar enough with this Christian doctrine. Luke says that the governor had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So the Jews could not manipulate him with these trumped-up charges. 
But Felix kept Paul for added investigation in the testimony of the tribune. And you can imagine the political pressure was intense and the outcome was not certainly clear. He knew the case couldn't stand up, but Felix was reluctant to offend these zealous Jews. So for the time being, he gave Paul considerable freedom, access to his friends, but still in custody. There's two things I want us to consider. First of all, I think from this text, we're implicitly encouraged to serve our country as good citizens. I hope you saw that. If not, let's talk about it. Because this text is another in a series of passages in which Christians are legally exonerated. According to the Roman law, these missionaries could not be condemned. And time after time, the Jews tried to prosecute Christ's faithful followers. Each time the Jews sought to impeach their character, it was to no avail. Why? Well, that's because those early Christians were striving to be good citizens. They were, in general, loyal, respectful, obedient, hardworking. And that's not because they were somehow unique. The virtue, I'm going to argue, from this of citizenship is a distinguishing trait of all believers. Their persecutors tried to pin things on them that never stuck. So whatever else can be said about them, the early Christians were good citizens. And this should be true of every sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Of all people, Christians should be the best citizens of all. And you ask me why. Why is that, Pastor? Because we know and we are trained that God appointed our leaders and he calls us to obey them. Our government officials are servants of God for the sake of justice. They wield the sword to maintain order and to uphold righteousness. And of course, you and I both know that there are times when radical changes in government must be made, when rulers become so corrupt and they fail so miserably at fulfilling their duty, extreme and far-reaching measures might be taken. But the Bible says, ordinarily, that we must obey and support our government. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So as Christians, we are to subject ourselves voluntarily to the existing government authorities. We're to be motivated not only by fear, but by our obligation to obey the Lord. Be in subjection for conscience's sake. This is the will of God. Conscience is God's witness, as you know, in our souls of doing right and wrong. That's conscience. Paul talks about this in Romans 2. Our conscience bears witness. 
and our conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse us. That's conscience. And let's remember that when Paul gave us this instruction, the Roman government was persecuting Christians. The Roman emperors before Constantine were no friends of Christianity. And yet Peter chimes in. And Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If that's not enough, Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We owe our leaders loyalty and support as far as conscience will allow. And of course, if they demand disobedience to God's word, we have to resist. We follow the example of those disciples who said we must obey God rather than men. But insofar as you and I can submit in good conscience, we're obligated to do so. Why? Because God appointed them. They're servants of the Most High. We may not like them. We may not agree with them. We may not even get along with them. But it makes no difference. If God appointed them, we must obey. I'll be honest with you. I don't particularly like speed limits. I often get frustrated over them. If I'm honest, sometimes I break them. Driving 25 miles per hour on Hudson Aurora Road is tedious. Going 55 miles per hour on a stretch of highway is wearisome. I'd rather go 75 on cruise control, but the authorities have set the speed limit. I'm obligated to obey. And by obeying the speed limit, I obey Jesus Christ. Somebody says, what do speed limits have to do with Christianity? Everything. If we are rebellious and insubordinate, we are being disobedient to Christ. Jesus said Pilate would have had no authority unless it had been given from above. Do you see the implication? Even the evil, unscrupulous Pilate was appointed And as far as I can tell, Jesus did not hold Pilate in contempt. He did not call him illegitimate. He did not look down his nose at the governor Pilate. He affirmed his a divine appointment. And he was obedient to every one of Pilate's lawful commands. I recall a man, and this goes back, I don't know, 25 years ago. I recall a man, a friend, who didn't like paying taxes didn't agree with the amount that he had to pay. <laughs> so, what did he do? He felt justified, just didn't pay him. And it caught up with him. But the worst part about it, he was disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you and I express our faith in part by obeying the lawful commands of lawful authorities. 
That includes going 25 on Hudson Aurora Road. To willingly do otherwise would prove our profession of faith a fraud. But there's a second observation here. We are taught by Paul's example that the resurrection hope is of supreme importance. In this, his first defense before the governor Felix, this truth was the principal doctrine of his faith. He says, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So apparently, everything that Paul believed and practiced was based upon this fundamental truth. The resurrection of Jesus and its corollary, the general resurrection of the dead. That was central to his faith. And this fact is even more conspicuous throughout his various New Testament epistles. As my old advisor, Richard Gaffin, says, this doctrine is the pivotal factor in the whole of the apostles' teaching on salvation, the resurrection of the dead. It inaugurated the Messianic age. It started the promised last days. As the firstborn of the dead, Jesus guarantees the resurrection of believers. And so important is this, that if you and I deny this truth, we cannot be Christians. What's more, we completely destroy and do away with the Christian faith. Isn't that important? If there is no resurrection of the dead, says Paul, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, everything said from this pulpit, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. So the exhortation is simply this. We believe in And we live in light of the general resurrection of the dead. It's going to happen. And it was this that sustained the patriarch Job in the midst of his extreme suffering. When he said this, he was at the bottom of the barrel. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. There is the resurrection of Christ. Then he goes on to say, after my skin has been thus destroyed, and this man was full of boils oozing out, he suffered. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And as he looked forward, he saw by faith the Savior's glorious resurrection. And I don't know how he did that. The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps God revealed it somehow. But then Job believed in and predicted his own resurrection, his hope beyond the grave, that on that final day, all people who ever lived will be raised up by the power of Christ, men, women, and children, both godly and ungodly, summoned from the grave. It's going to be an amazing sight. The earth and the sea, as God's stewards, will give back those that are in their charge. And this is important because death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's what death is. And as long as this union of soul and body remains severed, death abides. 
the last enemy, the king of terrors. The soul of the person continues to exist, but the body returns to the dust. So while the soul exists, it is incomplete until it is reunited with its body. And thus, however joyful the heavenly life might be, the bodiless state is temporary. Our full redemption, our complete salvation, involves soul and body. And God will keep his promise to restore our bodies in a glorified state. You know the passage, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory because they're back together. What a privilege it will be. Can you imagine it? To have a glorified body clothed in eternal life? But as I said, as perfect and blissful as the intermediate state is, it's still incomplete. And by the intermediate state, what I mean is the condition between your death and your resurrection. That's intermediate. At death... The believer's soul is made perfect in holiness and passes into heaven immediately. It's perfect blessedness, and nothing can spoil the joy and felicity of that glorified soul. Meanwhile, as you know, if you've been to a funeral, the body returns to the dust, no longer visible to the eyes or united to the soul. So that state, that intermediate state, is temporary. And it's upon the arrival of Jesus that the glorified soul and the resurrected body will reunite. And then we will experience the true, abundant, everlasting, glorified body life. And Paul says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How will he do that? by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So every sincere Christian has this glorious reunion of soul and body to anticipate. And Scripture constantly points our faith and hope forward to the resurrection. That's going to be the hour of our complete redemption, the day of redemption. And it should be the focus of every believer's eschatological hope. Eschatological, I know it's an expensive word, the last things. This ought to be the focus of our eschatological hope. Paul said, by any means possible, may I attain to the resurrection from the dead. And when that final day arrives, and the last grains of sand have fallen in the hourglass of time, this is what will happen The Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You cannot discover this by empirical evidence. You cannot deduce this by human logic. It can be known only by divine revelation and embraced by sincere saving faith. 
And there are only two primary causes for disbelieving this truth. Only two. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you're wrong because they denied the resurrection because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the reasons are ignorance of God's word and ignorance of God's power. Ignorance of God's power makes us doubt that he's able to do it. Ignorance of God's word makes us doubt that he's willing to do it. The first reason for disbelieving the resurrection is ignorance of God's power, which makes us doubt that he's able to do it. Rest assured, the Most High God is able to raise a decayed body from death. He has infinite power and he is capable of doing whatever he wants. Even after the body has been decayed, he can raise it and reunite it with the soul. Jesus said with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We don't know how he's going to do it. But we know he promised to do it. He is the omniscient and omnipresent God who can do all things. He knows the location of every particle of every physical body. And someone says to me, as has been said to me, how can that be? It's absurd. Worms eat flesh. Creatures eat worms. On and on the cycle goes with particles mixed up and jumbled everywhere. You can't possibly expect me to believe that he reassembles billions of bodies. You know something? Even if the dust of a thousand generations is mingled together, he can sort it out. God can distinguish each particle and reassemble all the bodies at the resurrection of the dead. As the angel Gabriel said to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. He'll raise the dead. To Abram, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? He's the one who created the universe by simply speaking it into the existence. And since he can do that, do you think he'll have any problem raising dead bodies? He who preserves and governs all creatures can certainly raise up a corpse. And I think too many people underestimate the power of God and they fail to believe in him. The Sadducees were a sad example. They did not know the power of God. But then the second reason for disbelieving the resurrection is the ignorance of Scripture. This is the reason for making people doubt that God is willing to do it. And yet our Lord expressly declared this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those poor Sadducees refused to believe in the teaching of Jesus Christ. And it's true of anybody who doesn't accept the truth of the resurrection. You see, God's covenant with the believer, as we saw this morning, is with the whole person. We're not just immaterial spirits, but we're created with physical bodies. God gave them for us to use as we seek to serve and worship him. And as stewards, we are to employ them faithfully in our service to him. Do you not know, says the apostle, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
So he concludes, you are not your own. For we were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God, the Holy Spirit, would not inhabit something that's going to perish forever. Jesus died to destroy death and to gain the victory over the grave, and he accomplished this, and his own resurrection is undeniable proof. So both believers and unbelievers will be raised from the grave at the last day. That's the truth. We will be raised by Christ as a risen Redeemer who loves us, and they will be raised by Christ as a just judge who will condemn them. And the same almighty power that put them away and shut them up will bring them forth. And Christ will then pronounce that fearful but just sentence of condemnation. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And it will be a frightening scene as they plunge soul and body into the lake of fire shrieking with terror. And you know something, if scripture had not revealed this so clearly, it would be difficult for me to accept. I can't imagine what it's going to be like. But God has given fair warning to every creature and there will be no excuse. By contrast, believers will be raised, we're told, in honor by the Spirit of Christ, a pleasant awakening. From all corners of the globe, the angels will gather the resurrected believers, and I don't know how he's going to do it, but he who made Peter walk on the water can do this. And then will be openly acknowledged, publicly acquitted before all the assembled universe. Mark and I were talking before the service. There are two judgments. There's a private and personal judgment at your death when the sentence is pronounced. There is a public and open judgment at the final judgment of angels and men when you are openly acquitted. And that's going to be a glorious time of joy and gladness, hilarity and rejoicing. So let's accept God's testimony about the future resurrection of the dead because this is our comfort. He wants us to know that death is vanquished. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If you're a follower of Christ, do you know that death no longer has any power to hurt you? It doesn't hurt. Its painful sting has been removed. Its dark terror has been taken away, and the grave has no victory. It couldn't hold Jesus, and it can't hold us. And so in light of that, let's devote ourselves to faith and good works. That's the excellence of Christianity, the eschatological hope which spurs on our faith. Hold fast to this hope. It will see you through the most difficult of trials. I want to close with this. Benjamin Franklin's epitaph. This is what's written on his tombstone. I quote, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, revised and corrected by its author. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul as a good and faithful and loyal citizen, and we pray that you'll help us to do the same. We thank you even more importantly for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. May it inspire us not only to live faithfully, but to live expectantly. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.